Chapter 9, Acts 1-6 and the Eclipse of the Biblical Kingdom It is no complicated matter to detect the reason for the Church's uncertainty over Jesus' central message. Our commentaries give evidence of hostility to the Christian messianism of which Jesus was a superlative exponent. When the Church fell prey to the idea that Jesus had no political ambition, that he was interested only in a, quote, spiritual kingdom, it put itself in conflict with the Hebrew Bible. Not only that, it had to confront the clear fact that Jesus' carefully trained apostles were ardent advocates of political restoration, even after the resurrection. They obviously had not abandoned the hope of Israel. With this fact, many commentaries seem most unhappy. Instead of yielding to and being corrected by the so-called awkward testimony of Scripture, they established a tradition which confronted the Bible and implied that the apostles were wrong in their assessment of Jesus' intentions. Theology thus mounted its own theory in opposition to Jesus and the apostles. It erected an effective roadblock against understanding the mind of the historical Jesus on the critical issue of the kingdom. Few passages of Scripture have suffered more at the hands of hostile expositors than Luke's brief and brilliant summary of Jesus' last conversation with his apostles. It is in the nature of so-called famous last words that they communicate something of supreme importance. The apostles' inquiry related to Jesus and Luke's favorite theme, the kingdom of God. They asked, quote, Lord, has the time now come for you to restore the kingdom to Israel? That's found in Acts chapter 1, verse 6. I note that the substance of this chapter was first published in the Evangelical Quarterly of 1994 and is used here with permission, of course. A common approach to this passage in Acts 1.6 has been to treat the Apostles' question as utterly out of tune with their Lord's teaching. Their inquiry is supposed to reveal a tragically inadequate understanding of Christianity's central theme. How, it is asked, could these associates of Jesus still cling so stubbornly to the so-called crude notion of a theocratic restoration of the kingdom as the renewal of the Davidic empire on earth, typical of the allegedly false hopes of Judaism? Fortunately, so the argument continues, the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost rescued the apostles from their crudely literal understanding of the kingdom of God and banished forever the Jewish national hope they were harboring. Theology's treatment of Acts 1 verse 6 exposes the failure of traditional Christianity to deal fairly with the issue of the kingdom of God. It displays a serious lack of sympathy for the Jewish atmosphere in which the teaching of Jesus is set. William Barclay's response to the disciples' parting question in Acts 1-6 
is typical. He despairs of the disciples' ability to grasp the meaning of Jesus' message of the kingdom, which is the heart of Jesus' gospel. I quote here from William Barclay. He says, The trouble was that Jesus meant one thing by the kingdom, and those who listened to him quite another. The apostles looked for a day when by divine intervention the world's sovereignty they dreamed of would be theirs. They conceived of the kingdom in political terms. That's from William Barclay's Acts of the Apostles, written in 1955. Barclay then gives us what he considers to be the true definition of the kingdom. It's, quote, a society upon earth where God's will would be as perfectly done as it is in heaven. And then he says that this is shown by the parallel phrases of the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come, and thy will be done on earth. Such a kingdom, Barclay maintains, could never be founded on power. A number of deeply rooted theological misconceptions underlie the disparaging attitude of commentators towards the disciples and their question about the restoration of Israel. Disapproval of the apostles in Acts 1.6 reveals in fact more about the prejudices of expositors than the truth of Scripture and suppresses vitally important biblical information about the nature and the future of the kingdom of God. An attack on the apostles in Acts 1 verse 6 implies an attack on Jesus who had taught them. Only recently have commentaries begun to be objective enough to see that nothing in the text suggests that Luke means us to view the apostles as out of step with Jesus' intentions. Common sense would require that the disciples be given credit for asking not the wrong question, but the right one. They had, after all, been in Jesus' company since the beginning. They had heard Jesus preach and teach the good news about the kingdom day after day. They themselves had been sent out in public to proclaim the same gospel of the kingdom as we read in Luke chapter 9, verses 2 and 6 and so on. They had been congratulated by Jesus for their special insight into the divine plan associated with the kingdom. I quote, To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus said in Matthew 13 verse 11, Jesus had probed their understanding of the parables of the kingdom to satisfy himself that they had grasped their meaning. I quote, Have you understood all these things? They said to him, Yes. Matthew 13, verse 51. To complete their training on the key issue of the kingdom of God, the disciples had undergone an intensive 40-day so-called seminar under the tutorship of the risen Jesus on earth. That's in Acts 1, verse 3 as Jesus opened their minds to understand Scripture, Luke 24, verses 32 and 45. It is incredible 
in view of this evidence, that after all this exposure to Jesus' instruction, they had failed entirely to understand what was meant by the kingdom. On those occasions when the disciples did not comprehend, the text says so plainly. When the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus were first mentioned, Luke writes, quote, but they did not understand this statement, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. Luke 9, verse 45. On the issue of the kingdom, however, the very opposite was true. They had been given the saving knowledge of the kingdom and had preached the gospel about the kingdom. The unsympathetic attitude of commentators to the notion of the kingdom as a restoration of the sovereignty to Israel points to a serious flaw in what theology has traditionally thought Jesus meant by the kingdom of God. Since Jesus' reply to the apostles cautions them only in regard to the time of the expected restoration, it is amazing that commentators should feel justified in making the disciples the targets of their indignation and adding to the text their own battery of arguments in favor of a supposedly superior view of the kingdom of God. Commentators' constant cry is that the Christian kingdom is, quote, spiritual and not political. For example, the Expositor's Bible Commentary says this, The question the disciples asked reflects the embers of a once blazing hope for a political theocracy in which they would be leaders. But though Jesus' words about the Spirit's coming rekindled in the disciples their old nationalistic hope, Jesus had something else in mind. End of quotation from the Expositor's Bible Commentary. The commentary describes the question of the disciples as, quote, misguided. The idea then is that the disciples were clinging to a so-called crassly Jewish notion about the future. A survey of a range of commentary will reveal the seriousness of the criticism leveled at the early followers of Jesus. A historical survey. The commentary by Jameson, Fawcett and Brown is one of the few of its era, 1868, which does not follow the usual pattern of condemnation. I quote, as their question certainly implies that they looked for some restoration of the kingdom to Israel, so they are neither rebuked for this nor contradicted. To say, as many expositors do, that our Lord's reply was so intended, is not to listen simply to what he says, but to obtrude upon his words what men think they ought to mean. That's from the Jameson, Fawcett and Brown commentary on Acts. With far less sympathy, H.A.W. Meyer, writing in 1884, deplores the apostles' lack of understanding. I quote, By their words to Israel, 
they betray that they have not yet ceased to be entangled in Jewish messianic hopes, according to which the Messiah was destined for the people of Israel as such. Compare with that Luke chapter 24, verse 21. That's from the critical and exegetical handbook to the Acts of the Apostles, written in 1979. The pulpit commentary reacted similarly. I quote, Even after the Master's crucifixion and resurrection, they had asked, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? It was not until after the effusion of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost that their imperfect view was corrected and they understood what Christ meant when he said, quote, My kingdom is not of the world. The terrestrial proceedings of the Messiah were the subject of the keenest expectations and the ground of national aspirations. Later commentary on our passage is unrelentingly harsh. Writers on the Book of Acts maintained a steady stream of negative reaction to the idea that the kingdom could be in any way compatible with a national restoration of Israel. The trend had been set by Calvin, who was no sympathizer with Messianism. Calvin dismissed Acts 1, verse 6, as evidence of a complete misunderstanding on the part of Jesus' chosen agents. I quote, There are more errors in the question in Acts 1, 6, then there are words. Their blindness is remarkable, that when they had been so fully and carefully instructed over a period of three years, they betrayed no less ignorance than if they had never heard a word. That's from Calvin's commentaries on the Acts of the Apostles. Calvin's astonishing criticism implies 11 mistakes. He does not detail his objections other than to say that the apostles confused the kingdom of Christ with a kingdom which belongs to Israel. Calvin is evidently angry that the apostles had not given up their Jewishness and replaced it with an attitude more so-called Christian. Calvin's objection, however, exposes the whole problem of Gentile failure to explain central New Testament themes, namely about the gospel of the kingdom. Commentary in the second half of the last century persisted with its attack on the alleged obtuseness of the apostles. Albert Barnes, writing in 1863, took the opportunity to correct the apostles and to reflect on the dangers of prejudice. I quote, The apostles had entertained the common opinion of the Jews about the temporal dominion of the Messiah. They expected that he would reign as a prince and conqueror and free them from the bondage of the Romans. Many instances of this expectation occur in the Gospels, notwithstanding all the efforts which the Lord Jesus made to explain to them 
the true nature of his kingdom. This expectation was checked and almost destroyed by Jesus' death. Luke 24, verse 21. Yet though his death checked their expectations and appeared to thwart their plans, yet his return to life excited them again. And as they did not doubt now that he would restore the kingdom to Israel, they asked whether he would do it at this time. They did not ask whether he would do it at all, or whether they had correct views of his kingdom, but taking that for granted, they asked him whether that was the time in which he would do it. The emphasis on the inquiry lies in the expression at this time, and hence the answer of the Saviour refers solely to this point of their inquiry and not to the correctness or incorrectness of their opinions. From these expectations of the apostles, we may learn, one, that there's nothing so difficult to be removed from the mind as prejudice in favor of erroneous opinions. Two, that such prejudice will survive the plainest proof to the contrary. Three, that it will often manifest itself even after all proper means have been taken to subdue it. Erroneous opinions thus maintain a secret ascendancy in a man's mind and are revived by the slightest circumstances even long after we supposed they were overcome and even in the face of the plainest proofs of reason or of scripture. That's from the commentary on Acts written by Albert Barnes in 1863. In the present century, the evident Jewishness of the disciples' question was noted and then dismissed in the style of Harnack as a useless husk within which we are to look for true, quote, spiritual ideas of the kingdom. Early Christianity is couched in the language of Jewish messianism, so the argument goes, but the essence of the faith lies elsewhere. The Clarendon commentary explains Acts 1.6 as follows. I quote, The question is put in the language of the old Jewish messianic hope. The restoration of the kingdom to Israel was the regular phrase for that final establishment of the theocracy and spiritual renovation of mankind, which had been the highest point of prophetic and apocalyptic expectation among the Jews. This hope was understood in a materialistic and nationalistic sense as promising a time of material prosperity and Jewish world empire. By some, but not by all. Clearly the disciples felt that an epoch-making crisis of divine action was at hand though clearly, too, they did not understand what its nature would be. In a note on the Messianic hope, a typical attempt is made to distinguish between Christian preaching and its Jewish dress. I quote now, 
So much of the Christian preaching in Acts is couched in the language of Jewish messianism that an excursus on the Jewish messianic hope is needed to grasp its significance. In time, the rule of God will be established and this revived theocracy would mean the renovation of Israel and through Israel of the nations as the spiritual dependence of Mount Zion. That's a quotation from the commentary on Acts. The value of this comment from the Clarendon commentary lies in its concise description of the content of the hope revealed by the Apostles' question. They were expecting the re-establishment of the promised Davidic theocracy. Discussion of the Kingdom of God in Acts 1 verse 3 provoked an eager response from the disciples. Mention of the Holy Spirit in the same context, Acts 1 verse 5, naturally led to the supposition that the time had finally arrived for the manifestation of the Messianic Kingdom described by Old Testament prophecy. Our passage in Acts 1.6, therefore, far from being an indication of apostolic ignorance, is of the highest significance as revealing the apostolic mind on eschatology, the doctrine of future events, and the nature of the kingdom of God. Commentary seems, however, to have dismissed Luke's and the Apostles' testimony to early Christian views of the future. John Bright's extensive study of the biblical theme of the Kingdom of God provides a further example of commentary expressing shock at the nationalism involved in the disciples' final remarks about the Kingdom. I quote, The Messianic hope of Israel was thus grimly tied to the line of David, to Jerusalem and the temple. It meant that as long as the state lasted, each king in the popular mind was a potential messiah. It helped to father the national delusion that though Judah might be decimated, Jerusalem and the Davidic state would never be destroyed. It meant that when he who was the fulfillment of that longing should appear, men would demand of him things which were not in his nature to deliver. With this question, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Acts 1 verse 6. That's from John Bright's book, The Kingdom of God. Later, John Bright adds, Judaism's frenetic question would be, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Surprisingly, even George Ladd, whose sympathy with premillennialism, that's to say belief in a future reign of Christ and the saints on earth, is well known, he was unable to break away from the tradition of exposition, which took exception to what were perceived as Jewish and therefore by definition unchristian ideas of the kingdom of God. 
Ladd pointed out that, quote, the phrase to redeem Israel in Luke 24 verse 21 does not refer to the redemption of men from their sins. In its present context, the phrase means to deliver Israel from her bondage to foreign powers. That's from George Ladd's book, I believe, In the Resurrection, written in 1975. George Ladd noted that this same sentiment is expressed in Acts 1 verse 6, where Luke summarizes the disciples' attitude by the question, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? The disciples were still looking for a nationalistic and political savior for the people of Israel, a hope which we have found in the apocalyptic literature. End of quotation from George Ladd. He adds, though Luke does not say this, Jesus rebuked them for failing to understand the prophetic scriptures. A change of attitude. In the same decade, a distinct change of heart is to be observed in the commentator's treatment of the problematic evidence of Acts 1 verse 6. An objective examination of the text revealed that neither Luke nor Jesus, whom he reports, displayed the slightest discomfort or surprise about the prospect of the restoration of the kingdom to Israel. No rebuke was issued to the disciples for their blindness. Everything in the context implies that they had asked a perfectly proper question. On other occasions, Luke is not afraid to report the slowness of the apostles to grasp truth when this is appropriate. Earlier, they were unable to accept that the Messiah had to die. I quote, they understood none of these things, Luke 18, verse 34. In Acts 1, verse 6, however, their question reflects an expectation which was simply the natural outcome of the detailed instruction about the kingdom they had received from Jesus. The hope of a restored Davidic kingdom was evidently part of the common view of the future held by Judaism and by Jesus. Indeed, as Lucan eschatology and kingdom theology have come under close scrutiny, its Jewishness has become more and more obvious. The results of this discovery have yet to filter down into the pulpit, much less the pew. But they should set in motion a revolution in our understanding of Jesus and his gospel. Consulman observed that the hope for the restoration of the kingdom to Israel met with not the slightest correction from Jesus. I quote, Acts 1.6 speaks of the kingdom being restored to Israel, it is not the hope of this which is rejected, but only the attempt to calculate when it will happen. That's from Consulman's The Theology of St. Luke, 1960. Henshin added his voice to those who saw the need to clear the disciples of the long-standing charge of spiritual blindness. Those gathered 
Luke implies that not only the apostles were present, ask whether Jesus will now restore the kingdom to Israel. The question is not meant to show the disciples' ignorance, but provides an opportunity to clarify a problem of the highest significance. The earliest Christians regarded the outpouring of the Spirit as a sign that the end of the world was at hand, and so they ask about the restoration of the kingdom. The word apokathistimi, to do with restoration, is a technical term in eschatology. The establishment of the right order by God at the end of time. He should have said, of course, the end of the age. That quotation was from the theological word book of the Bible. The kingdom of God in Luke's gospel. A number of important studies of Lucan theology have continued to clarify the meaning of key terms in Luke's account of Christianity. For example, G. A. Cordell in his Augsburg Commentary on Acts, written in 1990. Paramount among these is the kingdom of God. Interest in the restoration of the kingdom to Israel is not to be ascribed to a regrettable failure on the part of the disciples. It is an essential element in what Jesus and Luke meant by the kingdom. Taking Acts 1 verse 6 as our cue, we can see that Luke's hope for the future is fully in line with the Davidic messianism presented by Hebrew prophecy. This is nowhere challenged in the New Testament and is confirmed elsewhere in Luke's writings. The means by which the desired restoration of Israel is to be achieved obviously received a new twist when Jesus announced his own death and resurrection and when the Israel of his generation failed to recognize their Messiah. Luke's major point, however, is that God's promise of redemption in Israel and Jerusalem would not occur until the Messiah had passed through death, resurrection, and a period of exaltation to the right hand of the Father. Following this, he will indeed return to carry out the whole program of restoration foreseen by the prophets. Acts 3, verse 21. Jesus and the Messianic Program The New Testament hope, epitomized by the disciples' question in Acts 1-6, is based on the fact that Jesus came to confirm the promises given to the fathers. Romans 15, verse 8. The first thing said about Jesus is that he is destined to succeed to the throne of his ancestor David and to rule over the house of Jacob forever. Luke 1 verses 32 and 33. This statement is a precise summary of the messianic hope which pervades the prophets and the Psalms. It was the prevailing expectation among Jesus' contemporaries, as shown, for example, by the Psalms of Solomon, Numbers 17 and 18. 
Luke does not say that Jesus has already taken up a position on the throne of David. He closes the period of Messiah's ministry on earth by reverting to the Davidic theme announced by Gabriel before the conception of Jesus. He records Jesus' approval of the hope of Israel's restoration, noting that it lies in the future. By reporting the disciples' question about when the restoration will occur, Luke allows us to know that Jesus distinguishes between the immediate coming of the Spirit at Pentecost, not many days hence, Acts 1.5, and the restoration of the kingdom to Israel, which is to occur at a time unknown, Acts 1 verse 7. In a sermon given by Peter shortly after Pentecost, further light is thrown on the time for the expected fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. In answer to the very reasonable objection that Jesus' disappearance to heaven does not seem to advance the messianic program on earth, Peter explained that, quote, heaven must retain the Messiah until the times of the restoration of all things about which God spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. That's a quotation from Acts 3, verse 21. The period which Israel is to look forward to is also a time of relief, anapsesis, Acts 3, verse 19, which is to be introduced by the coming of the Messiah. We should not overlook the important connection between the apokatastasis, meaning restoration, promised for the future, parousia, and the related verb found in the earlier question of the disciples. Is it at this time that you're going to restore apokathistanis, the kingdom to Israel? In the light of this verse, it is highly unlikely that Luke intends to say that Jesus' session at the right hand of the Father marks the re-establishment of the throne of David. Luke has previously made a careful distinction between the coming of the Spirit, Acts 1.5, consequent upon the Messiah's ascension, and the still future coming of the Davidic kingdom, Acts 1, verses 6 and 7. Luke wants us to understand that the great Davidic themes announced earlier by the angel and prophesied by Mary, Zechariah, and Simeon still await their fulfillment when Jesus returns. We find this in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 55, and verses 68 to 79, and in Luke 2, verses 25 to 32. The promised restoration is the subject of the charismatic utterances which accompanied the birth of Jesus. The recipients of these prophetic visions were the faithful of the Messianic community. They were not Jews who did not understand the Christian hope. The same anticipation of the re-establishment of the throne of David remains a burning issue 
for the apostles of Jesus just before his ascension. The biblical Christian expectation is for the renewal at the reappearance of the Messiah of the Davidic kingdom so that Israel may serve the Lord all their days, as we read in Luke 1, verses 74 and 75, and be guided into the peace which she has never experienced. Luke 1, 79. The Magnificat and the Benedictus are of the highest significance as laying out Christian teaching about the future. That time is expressed in prophetic past tenses. It's clear that before Jesus' birth, Israel had not yet been, quote, saved from the hands of all who hate her. Luke 1, verse 74. Nor had the righteous been exalted to rule in place of the mighty who were to be deposed. Luke 1, verse 52. The New Testament expects these messianic events to be fulfilled only at the return of Christ. Matthew 19, 28, Acts 3, verse 21, and Revelation 11, verses 15 to 18. Luke's Messianic Outlook The songs of Mary and Zechariah are inspired utterances which do not deal with the immediate career of Jesus nor his death and resurrection, but look ahead to the second coming, which for Luke is the time for the redemption of Israel. For Mary and Zechariah, the birth of Jesus guarantees the future long-awaited goal of all prophecy, the establishment of universal peace under the rule of the Messiah, the promised heir to the throne of David. When a number of Luke's key terms are brought together, we gain a coherent picture of a messianic future which confirms the vision of Old Testament prophecy. Particularly, I note the themes announced by Isaiah, chapters 40 to 66. The righteous are eagerly anticipating prostechome, the consolation, paraklesis, of Israel, Luke 2.25, which has still not occurred by the time of the crucifixion, since Joseph of Arimathea is still waiting, prostechome, the kingdom of God, as we read in Luke 23, verse 51. The parallel language shows that Luke expects the coming of the kingdom to involve the restoration of Israel, the righteous remnant who enjoy the inspiration of, quote, Holy Spirit, share this hope. Zechariah awaits the redemption, Litrosis, Luke 1.68, of Israel, which for Anna the prophetess is the redemption, Litrosis, of Jerusalem, Luke 2, verse 38. The hope is definitely territorial and tied to Jerusalem as the center of the expected kingdom. The hope expressed through Mary and Zechariah as mouthpieces of the Holy Spirit is not fulfilled at the crucifixion, for the disciples were still looking for Jesus 
to redeem litroste to redeem Israel in Luke 24 verse 21 their desire for national deliverance is not rebuked by Jesus and it reappears in Acts 1 verse 6 after the disciples have received further extensive teaching about the kingdom from the risen Messiah Acts 1 verse 3 the ultimate restoration of Israel is certain as an event quite distinct from the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost. It is the prerogative of the Father to determine when it will happen, since no man knows the day of the coming of the Son of Man in power and in the power of his kingdom. Jesus does not deny that he will bring about the restoration of Israel, but merely indicates that it's not for his disciples to know the time of the event. Acts 1 verse 7. Just as Jesus himself did not know the day of his future coming. Mark 13 verse 32. Further information is provided by Luke in his version of Jesus' apocalyptic discourse Jerusalem is to be trodden down until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Luke 24, verse 21. The implication is that Jerusalem, as capital of the Messiah's kingdom, will not remain under Gentile control indefinitely. When the times of Gentile dominion appeared with links to Daniel's vision of heathen oppression of the Holy Land, Daniel 8, verse 13, when these have run their course, the time for Jerusalem's redemption will have arrived. Luke describes the same scheme exactly when he postpones the manifestation of the kingdom in Jerusalem to the time when the nobleman, who must first depart to a far country, returns to reign in the kingdom, which by then he has obtained. The Old Testament basis for this whole eschatological outlook is clear. Isaiah 1 verse 26 promises a restoration of Israel's administrators as at the first. While in Isaiah chapter 63 verses 17 and 18, God is urged to quote, return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Compare with that Psalm 122 verses 3 to 5. The theme of comfort in Jerusalem reflects the promises of Isaiah chapter 40 verse 1, chapter 49 verse 13, chapter 51 verse 3, chapter 52 verse 9, chapter 57 verse 18, and chapter 66 verses 11 and 13. The redemption of Jerusalem is foreseen by Isaiah 43 verse 1, 44 23, 51 verse 11, 52 verse 3, and in 63 verse 4, where we have in the Septuagint the same word, litrosis. Restoration is expected in Isaiah 1 verse 26, Isaiah 49 verse 6 and 8, Isaiah 52 verse 8, Isaiah 58 verse 12, 
Compare with that Jeremiah 27, verses 22, and chapter 3, verses 17 to 19. The coming of the kingdom is evidently the same event and is expected in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7, where we read, Your God reigns, and the Targum reads, The kingdom of God is revealed. The holy people possessed your sanctuary a little while. Our adversaries have trodden it down. That's a quote from Zechariah chapter 12, verse 3 in the Septuagint, where we read also, Everyone that tramples on Jerusalem shall utterly mock at it. This prophecy is repeated in Revelation chapter 11, verse 2. They shall trample on the holy city for 42 months. Isaiah 65, verse 9 and following, along with a mass of other Hebrew prophecy, promises a grand restoration of the land of Israel with a new Jerusalem. Jesus and Luke's key eschatological terms are rooted in a number of other Old Testament passages. Isaiah 52 verses 9 to 10 speaks of the consolation and redemption of Israel at the time when God reveals his holy arm and all the ends of the earth see the salvation of God. Isaiah 49 verse 6 describes the recovery of the diaspora of Israel. The important point is that Luke expects restoration to occur fully at the return of Jesus in power. The apocatastasis, or restoration, of Acts 3, verse 21, which will bring about restoration for Israel, as in Acts 1, verse 6. And this will coincide with the coming of Jesus, when, at the same time, the disciples may, quote, lift up their heads because their redemption Apolytrosis draws near, as we read in Luke 21, verse 28, which is only another way of saying that the kingdom of God is about to come. Luke 21, verse 31. At that time, and not before, the Lord's prayer for the coming of the kingdom will be fulfilled. Luke's interchangeable phrases may be summarized as follows. The arrival of the apocalyptic kingdom in Luke 21:31 is the same as the redemption of the disciples in Luke 21 verse 28 and this is the same as the redemption in Jerusalem Luke 2 verse 35 which is itself the same as the redemption of Israel Luke 24 verse 21 the expected future kingdom in Luke 23, verse 51, is the same as the expected consolation of Israel in Luke 2:25. The restoration of the kingdom to Israel, Acts 1:6, is the same as the times of the restoration of all that was promised through the mouth of the prophets, Acts 3, verse 21. And this is the same as the restoration of the house of David as promised through the mouth of the prophets, 
Luke 1 verse 70, and this is the equivalent of the enthronement of Jesus on the throne of David, to which he is heir. Luke 1, 32 and 33. Contemporary commentary on Acts 1 verse 6. Recent commentary is happily no longer defensive in admitting the strongly political flavor of Luke's Christianity and allows for a recovery of a full understanding of the gospel as it came from the lips of Jesus. R. Tannehill says, John and Jesus are presented as the fulfillment of hopes for the redemption of Israel and Jerusalem. Jesus is the Davidic Messiah. Luke 1, verses 32, 33, 68, and 69, who will bring political freedom to the Jewish people. Luke 1, 71, and 74. That's from his book, The Narrative Unity of Luke Acts. Tannehill notes that the narrator understands the scriptures to promise a messianic kingdom for Israel, which will be a time of peace and freedom from oppressors. This promise is acknowledged as valid if only Israel would accept its Messiah. Tannehill explains that Luke's theme of redemption for Israel continues to appear as a future hope, even after the crucifixion. The biblical Christian teaching about the future has lost none of its Jewish Old Testament orientation. It is still tied to the recovery of Israel and her resettlement in the land. I quote, We were hoping that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Again, it's a question of Israel's redemption. This hope is revived by Jesus' resurrection, which leads the disciples to ask, Are you at this time restoring the kingdom to Israel? Acts 1 verse 6. Here the hope for Israel's messianic kingdom, strongly expressed in the birth narratives, reappears. This question does not merely show the blindness of followers who have not yet received the Spirit. Jesus corrects their curiosity about times, but he does not reject the possibility of a restored kingdom for Israel. And Peter, after receiving the Spirit, still holds out the hope of the, quote, restoration of all the things which God spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets of old. Acts 3, verse 21. That quotation was from the book by Tanner Hill, The Narrative Unity of Luke Acts. Of particular interest is the fact that Luke 1, verse 70, and Acts 3, 21, both contain the all-encompassing phrase Quote, which God spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. In a brief statement, the whole sweep of Hebrew prophecy is brought before us. The promises of a royal Messiah succeeding to the throne of David and bringing about liberation for Israel and Jerusalem still await fulfillment at the parousia, Jesus' words are to the same effect. 
The disciples are to expect their own redemption and the advent of the kingdom at the return of the Messiah. Luke 21, verses 28 and 31. The great events marking the re-establishment of the Davidic kingdom are not fulfilled when the Spirit is poured out and do not apply, therefore, to the church this side of Christ's return. The Messiah's absence in heaven is temporary, extending to the end of the present age. Then will come the time for the realization of the hope which has run like a golden thread through the Hebrew Scriptures and onwards into the Gospels. Luke's reporting of the prophetic utterances of Mary, Zechariah and Simeon are a precious foundation for Christian hope as long as the parousia is delayed. Gabriel's opening announcement about the restoration of the throne of David and the disciples' closing question about the restoration of Israel bracket the whole of Luke's account of the Christian faith. Confirmation that this is Luke's and Jesus' consistent message is provided by Arthur Wainwright, who observes that Luke demonstrates a considerable knowledge of Jewish tradition. The beloved physician, as a true believer, and I quote, retained the influence of Judaism. Luke was deeply concerned about Israel's future. Luke appears to look forward to a time when Israel will be reinstated. His references to the restoration and redemption of Israel provide a clue to his theological presuppositions. This redemption will follow the return of the Son of Man. That was from the article by Arthur Wainwright entitled Luke and the Restoration of the Kingdom to Israel in the Expository Times, 1977. Modern readers of the Bible often find it impossible to share Luke's outlook and therefore miss the richness of the messianic hope which is fundamental to biblical Christianity. The pressing question is whether the church has not thrown away a central element of New Testament faith by calling the earlier chapters of Luke pre-Christian. Commentaries clamorous accusations that the apostles were lamentably slow in growing out of their, quote, Jewish political views of the kingdom may simply reveal how far we have departed from a New Testament understanding of the kingdom of God. One of Luke's main purposes was to teach us Christian eschatology. We have tended to reject much of it and claimed a superior understanding which we label, quote, spiritual, as distinct from Luke's Hebrew-based vision of the future, which we find intolerably Jewish. The record of exposition which finds fault with the apostles on the crucial issue of the definition of the kingdom should cause us to ponder what theologians have been up to. Gresham Machen, in his discussion of the early chapters of Luke, spoke of the, quote, absence of specifically Christian ideas 
in the Magnificat and Benedictus, the absence of reference to facts in the life of Jesus. That's from his book, The Virgin Birth of Christ, in 1930. He explained Luke's inclusion of these messianic songs by saying that they point, quote, to a time when the messianic hope was still couched in the terms of Old Testament prophecy. The songs of Mary and Zechariah were produced at a time when Old Testament prophecy had not yet been explained by its fulfillment. But Luke thinks quite differently. Those early Christian songs declare future messianic events which remain unfulfilled as long as Jesus is absent in heaven. To the eye of faith, those great events appear fulfilled even before the beginning of the ministry of Jesus in Palestine, since they are certain in the divine plan. A disastrous theory, which equated the kingdom with the time period immediately following the resurrection of Jesus, however, brought about a radical confusion over Jesus and the New Testament's most fundamental concept, the kingdom of God. Jesus still looked forward to the restoration and ultimate political liberation of Israel and the world at his return. He did not abandon a natural reading of the prophets. Many of his followers, however, have transmuted the prophets' obvious hope for the reinstatement of Israel in the land and applied it to the church now. There's a need to rediscover the territorial element in salvation, indeed in the gospel. For excellent insights into New Testament eschatology, in the light of its Hebrew background, see the book by G.W. Buchanan, The Consequences of the Covenant, written in 1984. Raymond Brown also finds that, quote, there is nothing distinctively Christian in Gabriel's words in verses 32 to 33 of Luke 1, except that the Davidic Messiah has been identified with Jesus. That's in his book, The Virgin Birth of the Messiah, written in 1977. On the contrary, Luke was documenting the Christian faith and presenting a view of the future which is in need of recovery if our claim to believe in the normative role of Scripture is to be genuine. Apostolic Christians maintained the Jewish Old Testament hope of peace on earth to be brought about by a new world empire centered in Jerusalem. Luke so understands the future of the kingdom of God. He describes a faith which is universal in its embrace, but for all that, nonetheless focused on the hope of Israel, the destiny of Jerusalem, and the ultimate reestablishment of the throne of David. The disciples' question then in Acts 1, verse 6, is the climax of a coherent series of sayings about the future kingdom of God in Luke-Acts. From the beginning of the Gospel, Luke presents the kingdom of God as messianic and Davidic. As both Mary and Zechariah exclaim, the root concept of the kingdom is found in the covenant 
made with Abraham. Luke 1, verses 55, 72, and 73, of which the Davidic covenant is an extension. The restoration of the kingdom to Israel at the second coming is the ultimate horizon of that Christian hope. If the spiritualizing and mystical influence of Origen, which is so deeply embedded in Christian tradition, is slayed aside, and we consider the possibility that the original faith should be read in terms of its own Hebrew messianic presuppositions, it will not be difficult to see that Luke expects that Israel and the land are to be the arena of a restored Davidic theocracy. Compare with that Matthew 5 verse 5 and Revelation 5 verse 10. This is just what we would expect from a community devoted to the Abrahamic and Davidic covenant, which were the backbone of Jewish piety, and to the message of the prophets, for whom the Messiah and the kingdom of God were intensely political and not therefore unspiritual concepts. When the kingdom of God is redefined as, quote, heaven for departed souls, a synonym for the church or a social program, or even Zionist hopes, this side of the second coming, it is unlikely that the biblical gospel of the kingdom can be heard in terms which make sense of it in its own Jewish context. I note that liberation theology catches the spirit of Luke's vision of a political freedom, but tries to force it into being now what the New Testament does not expect before the parousia. The Christian gospel presents salvation from sins for individuals, but salvation is linked to the future renewal of the earth and to a kingdom centered in Jerusalem. The central message of Jesus was the approach of the kingdom of God for which men were to prepare with all urgency and of which he was the appointed ruler. How faithfully has this gospel been transmitted to us? A positive answer is hardly possible. A recent history of the doctrine of the kingdom of God by B.T. Viviano in his book The Kingdom of God in History suggests that the kingdom has not received anything like the attention it enjoys in the New Testament as the heart of Jesus' gospel of salvation. Moreover, it has suffered drastic reinterpretation when it has been forced to support various man-made agendas unrelated to the messianic kingdom or reduced to an interior kingdom in the heart. Speaking of the misuse of Luke 17, verse 21, the kingdom of God is among you, as a way of obscuring the much greater emphasis on the futurity of the kingdom, B.T. Viviano says, I quote, Unfortunately, this verse in Luke 17, 21 has been abused throughout history and led to an overly spiritual, depoliticized, and then trivialized interpretation of the kingdom. It is a mistake to make this verse in Luke 17, 21 the starting point of our understanding of the kingdom 
in the proclamation of Jesus. The same might be said of the misuse of Jesus' statement that his kingdom was, quote, not of this world. John 18, verse 36. It has been assumed without careful reflection that the kingdom will never be on earth. What Jesus meant, however, was that his kingdom did not have its origin in the present evil systems dominated by Satan. When Jesus spoke of preparing places for the disciples, quote, in my father's house, John 14, verse 2, he was thinking of the future kingdom of God on earth. He added immediately that he was going to come back to the earth, John 14, 3, so that he and the disciples could be reunited in the places prepared by the Father, the kingdom, quote, prepared from the foundation of the world, which the disciples are to enter when Jesus returns. Matthew 25, verse 34. Eschatology and the recovery of the biblical hope. Acts 1, verse 6 is a valuable text as a starting point for the recovery of New Testament theology of the kingdom. Until recently, this verse has been dismissed out of hand because it did not seem to agree with what we thought the kingdom of God should be. In 1924, A.F. McInnes examined the kingdom of God as described in the Apostolic Writings. The book was entitled The Kingdom of God in the Apostolic Writings, 1924. In a brief comment on Acts 1.6, he dismisses the apostles as unreliable witnesses to the nature of the kingdom. At the beginning of Acts, says McInnes, we see that the apostles still held to their erroneous conception of the kingdom of God. They asked Jesus, after the resurrection, when he would restore the kingdom to Israel. Acts 1 verse 6, they were thinking of an earthly kingdom. That's from the kingdom of God in the Apostolic Writings by A.F. McInnes. G.T. Stokes, reflecting a catastrophic misunderstanding of the Jewishness of Jesus, referred to the disciples' inquiry about the kingdom as, quote, the darkened utterance of carnal and uninspired minds groping after the truth. Such commentary marks the point at which the churches have, quote, leapt the track and departed into their own unbiblical version of the kingdom. The question is, whose minds are in need of enlightenment? Those of the makers of Christian tradition or those of Jesus' personally trained disciples? Ramsey Michaels put his finger on the long-standing problem reflected in the antagonistic attitude of commentators and prepares us for a re-evaluation of what Harnack saw as the most critical of all questions. Harnack said, Neither my theology nor yours matters. What matters is the right teaching of the gospel. Michaels wrote the following, the tendency of much Christian scholarship 
has been to minimize the Jewishness or ethnicity of Jesus' vision of the kingdom of God, with the observation that he had no interest in a political kingdom, or one that could be established by military might or rebellion against Rome. The tacit assumption is that non-political means non-nationalistic, which in turn means non-ethnic and non-Jewish, but instead, quote, spiritual or, quote, universal. Actually, the kingdom of God in Jewish expectation was both spiritual and national, both universal and ethnic. After the resurrection, according to the book of Acts, Jesus' disciples asked him, even after he had instructed them for 40 days about the kingdom of God, quote, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Acts 1 verse 6. Jesus' reply gives no hint that this nationalistic expectation was in any way wrong or misguided, only that the time of the restoration was set in God's authority alone. That's a quotation from The Kingdom of God in 20th Century Interpretation, edited by Wendell Willis. We propose that commentators adopt the mindset of the apostles for a moment and allow themselves the liberty of supposing that these disciples of Jesus, in fact, knew exactly what they were talking about. Such an experiment could revolutionize our understanding of the thrust of the whole New Testament. A kingdom which is, quote, spiritual, need not mean a kingdom which cannot appear at the return of Christ localized in Jerusalem, with the new David as its sovereign in the company of the resurrected saints. See, for example, Daniel 7, verses 14, 18, 22, and 27. Luke 22, verses 28 to 30. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2. And 2 Timothy 2, verse 12. Revelation 2, verse 26. Revelation 3, verse 21. Revelation 5, verse 10. And Revelation 20, 1 to 6. This kingdom will be one that blesses the entire world with an era of unparalleled prosperity and security. Why should such a thing be thought incredible when prophets and psalmists looked for the regathering of the tribes in the land and sang of the coming glorious reign of Messiah on earth? When the cloud of confusion over the kingdom of God is lifted, and when commentators believe what the New Testament says about the future, it will become quite clear that Acts 1 verse 6 is a text which sits in judgment on our failure to believe the prophets and our reluctance to accept that the apostles knew better than we do what Jesus meant by the kingdom of God. Bible readers are accustomed to hearing those parts of the text which fit with received ideas. It is possible that other elements of the message are unconsciously rejected because they are unfamiliar. 
Christian concentration on individual salvation now and that death has seriously interfered with the massive New Testament emphasis on the kingdom of God to be inaugurated when Jesus returns as conquering Messiah. In view of the delay of Christ's return, the church seems to have lost its nerve when it comes to believing those elements of the gospel which promise good things coming. Yet this should be the heart of her message. Faced with the obvious social and political implications of the Magnificat and Acts 1 verse 6, expositors have resorted to various ways of bypassing the text. One technique is to offer a spiritualizing, so-called, interpretation. A second is to read the text as authorizing political or social action this side of the second coming. A third solution is to maintain that earlier revolutionary attitudes are modified or even corrected by later developments in the teaching of Jesus. This third way around the difficulty founders on the evidence of Luke 21 verse 24 and particularly Acts 1 verse 6 and Acts 3 verse 21. While it is clear that the historical Jesus undertook no revolutionary action in the political sense or in the political arena, this does not mean that a political revolution is not envisaged for the future. The day of the Lord is yet to come. It is to this great event that Luke 24 verse 21, Acts 1 6 and Acts 3 verse 21 point so clearly. It is fatal to a proper grasp of the kingdom of God to rule the evidence of Acts 1 6 out of court on the grounds that the disciples did not share our perception of what the kingdom should be. Once Acts 1 verse 6 and other politically loaded verses are allowed to stand as testimony to the future kingdom as a world government entrusted to the returning Jesus and the saints, a flood of light is thrown on the biblical message. It is important to note that a kingdom involving the restoration of Israel to the land is neither worldly nor secular, because it is to be a kingdom in the hands of the Messiah himself. The suggestion that Jesus' activity as a non-violent preacher and healer is more, so to speak, or so-called spiritual than his implementation of a world government on the throne of David, sets up a false dichotomy. Luke and the New Testament in general present us with a Jesus who is both the suffering Messiah and the conquering Messiah who brings in the kingdom with power at his return. Our problem is that we've been reading the New Testament as though it is not a messianic document in the sense indicated by Acts 1.6.
and compare with that Revelation 11, verses 15 to 18, and Luke 19, verses 11 to 27. Tradition has taught us to believe, often very vaguely, in the future of the individual soul at death. Luke intends us to look forward to the restoration of the throne of David and of Israel to the land, a new orientation to Bible exposition is needed. Jesus demonstrated the power of the future kingdom in his ministry. The mighty, however, were not toppled from their thrones. The humble did not replace them, and Jesus did not ascend the throne of David. Nor was the kingdom of God re-established in Israel. Luke is careful to tell us that the outpouring of the Spirit at the Ascension, though it certainly advances the Messianic program, is not the fulfillment of the promised restoration of Israel. Until that time, the Spirit, as quote, the Spirit of the promise, Ephesians 1.13, is given as a down payment of something much greater namely our future inheritance of the kingdom. It is a misreading of the gospel of Jesus to think that the content of his message is confined to events which took place in Galilee. Nor is the gospel complete in the death and resurrection of Jesus. The gospel takes in the broad sweep of salvation history including the all-important kingdom still to be established. Setting dates for that event is, of course, impossible. Making known the fact of the future is part of the task of relaying the gospel faithfully. The presentation of the biblical view of the future, including the information supplied by Acts 1 verse 6, clarifies the meaning of the hope which Paul sees as a solid basis for the development of faith and love. See for that fact Colossians 1 verse 5 and Ephesians 1 verse 18. Acts 1 verse 6 does not represent a decline from the spirituality of Jesus, but is part and parcel of the total spiritual expectation of the kingdom to which Luke and the New Testament writings point. Acts 1 verse 6 reflects the mature understanding of disciples who have been with Jesus. There is value in reflecting anew on how Calvin and a whole tradition of exposition dealt with Acts 1 verse 6. Notice also the cavalier fashion in which the Hastings Dictionary of the Bible dismisses Acts 1.6 as valuable only as, quote, an authentic little touch, a veritable reminiscence of what we may be sure was their real attitude at the moment, though it soon ceased to be. When they asked, Lord, dost thou at this time restore the kingdom to Israel, their thoughts were still running in the groove of the old Jewish expectation. It is the last trace of them 
that we have in this naive form. That's from the Hastings Bible of the Dictionary, Volume 2. And I say, on the contrary, the same eschatology found in Acts 1.6 is confirmed in Acts 3.21. Calvin's negative reaction to the apostles and their question in Acts 1.6 gives point to the whole thesis of this book that the Church has for too long presented its members with a demessianized gospel and a demessianized Jesus, since the whole point of the New Testament is to present Jesus as the Messiah, a hornet's nest of problems must arise when a self-contradictory, unmessianic Christ replaces the biblical Jesus. The lesson to be learned from Acts 1 verse 6 is that apostolic testimony about the kingdom is for our correction. For too long the church has rejected a concept of the kingdom which is foreign to our thinking but not to that of the apostles who saw more clearly than we what it means to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. The Jesus described in Luke's Gospel is heir to the throne of David in Jerusalem, the restorer of the kingdom to Israel and the guarantor of worldwide peace on earth, a prospect foreshadowed in his spiritual activity in Palestine. That unity which at present eludes churches may be regained by rallying around the Jesus of Scripture the Jesus who is the Messiah and King of the Jews, bearer of the saving gospel of the kingdom and destined to rule the world in Jerusalem.